the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, today is the start of the uh, RNC political convention in which they've nominated Donald Trump. We'll tell you more about that as this is day one of four. And this time around, the president uh, is going to be present and speaking every one of those four days. In fact, he spoke earlier today. It was supposed to be just a few minutes. It ended up stretching out into about an hour. Anyway, we'll tell you more about that. And in the perspective of the DNC convention that completed uh, that that concluded last week. Today, we'll share a classic interview with Dr. David Duell. He is the author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. The book is published by Hendrickson, and we'll share that with you in the second hour of today's program. Well, President Trump promises a game-changing convention focusing on America's greatness and repelling the Democrats' barbs that we heard plenty of last week. President Trump uh, previewed this week's Republican National Convention on Sunday, and he promised the quadrennial confab will counter what he called the Democrats' dark event last week and instead offer a positive vision of American greatness. Trailing former Vice President Joe Biden in national public opinion polls, and more importantly, also down by single-digit margins in many of the key general election battleground states that will decide the White House contest, the president's working to create game-changing moments that can alter the long-standing dynamic of the 2020 presidential race. Where Joe Biden sees American darkness, I see American greatness, the president said on Friday at the gathering of the Council for National Policy, which is composed of um, leading Republican donors. Four straight days attacking a America as a racist, horrible country that must be redeemed, the president said. Joe Biden grimly declared a season of American darkness, but look at what we've accomplished until the plague came in, and look, we're doing it again. While testing out themes for the convention, the president urged supporters to reject the anger and the hate of the Democrat Party and argue that no party can lead America that spends so much time tearing down America. The president, uh, not surprisingly, slammed the Democrats, saying, they see darkness. He sees American greatness. And his campaign unveiled the convention speakers. We'll tell you more about that. Um, and again, the president speaking every night. Joe Biden headed, headed into his conviction, uh, leading Trump in the polls. But by how much? We'll take a look at that later in the program as well. And the president defends the fiery rhetoric he's been uh, offering in a Fox News exclusive interview, uh, saying, if I don't fight back strong, I wouldn't be sitting here now. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un has fallen into a coma and his sister is set to take control. That's according to a South Korean ex-diplomat. Just days after North Korean leader Kim Jong-un designated his younger sister to take the reins of some of the country's leadership role, a South Korean ex-diplomat is speculating that the strong-armed leader has fallen into a coma. Now, what is that based on? Well, Chang Song-min, a former aide to South Korean's uh, latest president, Kim Dae-jung, 
uh, made the claims to South Korea's media. According to the New York Post, Chang suggested Kim is in a coma, but his life has not ended. In a private meeting with lawmakers last week, South Korea's National Intelligence Service says Kim Jong-un, Uh, The first vice department director of the Workers' Party Central Committee is steering overall state affairs on the delegation, though Kim, her brother, still maintains absolute authority. And while there is still doubt about Chang's um, claims, it was not the first time Kim's prolonged absence from the public spotlight has fueled speculation about his health. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un declares North Korea will refuse outside aid to combat coronavirus and help rebuild after the flood damage. And North Korea has likely developed many nukes to fit into warheads of ballistic missiles. Kellyanne Conway is going to leave the White House post to focus on her family. Kellyanne Conway is President Trump's counselor and one of the longest fixtures in the Trump White House, will leave her position at the end of the month to focus on her family, she tweeted late on Sunday. Her husband, George Conway, is a fierce critic of President Trump, was also expected to make unspecified changes. We disagree about plenty, but we are united on what matters most, the kids, she said in a statement. Our four children are teens and tweens starting a new academic year in middle school and high school, remotely from home for at least a few months. She said the decision to exit the White House months before the election was completely her choice and once again pointed out her devotion to her children and said there will be less drama, more mama. Conway has been one of the most effective envoys for Trump and has seldom backed down from questions from the press and the target of criticism from Democrats. She helped him win election in 2016 as his campaign manager. She said that the Democratic mayors are starting to lose it, realizing Trump will get four more years. And she claims the DMC speakers attacked Trump to distract from feckless, reckless and um, cantankerous Biden. Kellyanne says Americans aren't fooled by Biden's policies and the former vice president has benefited from the lockdown. In other news, police involved shooting in Wisconsin prompts a violent protest that went Um, quite out of control. And the New Zealand mosque mask shooter uh, to speak at a sentencing hearing. But what he says uh, will be censored. So he's going to have the opportunity to speak. President Trump announced emergency authorization of a breakthrough coronavirus treatment. And Representative Ken Buck responded to the Democrats $25 billion post office bailout vote, saying the Postal Service has been bleeding money for 40 years. In the latest uh, business news, the dollar has steadied on Monday as traders look to global economic health moving forward. And Facebook's Zuckerberg has raised red flags concerning the threat of TikTok. And um, Peter Navarro has slammed Biden as uh, siding with credit card companies over consumers with 2005 bankruptcy bill he supported at the time. Well, the Republican convention began today. Trump teased it by telling reporters, I hope you had a great weekend at your convention. (laughs) Uh, From the Wall Street Journal, Democrats want to make the election a referendum on Donald Trump's character. But it was striking that over four days last week, they had precious little to say about their policies. They offered infomercials on gun violence, immigration, climate change and racial justice that appealed to the young and gentry left. But they offered little detail on how they'd help American workers. This opens the door to the GOP to educate voters about the Democratic plans and to offer an alternative economic platform with broader appeal. On the former, the openings are many. Hostility to fossil fuels, much higher taxes, vast new regulation, and diktats on health care, energy, education, housing, and finance. Molly Hemingway says... 
I don't know about you guys, but the thing I'm most looking forward to during the RNC convention week is the effusive and gushing tweets from political staff. I mean, I assume they'll do it not just for the Democratic convention, a bit tongue in cheek. Hugh Hewitt points out and admits that the 2016 Republican convention was packed with skeptics, including me, now says skeptics like me have been persuaded that he will do what he promises, but he won't change. A second Trump term will be rhetorically the same as the first. Military budgets will be the same. Judicial nominees the same. Deregulation efforts will continue. Taxes will stay where they are, end quote. Meanwhile, Trump got the backing of yet another police union. Well, the post-Democratic convention showed no bump for um, Mr. Biden. We'll see if that changes for the the, uh, Republican convention. I mean, this was a virtual convention after all. YouGov before and after had Biden up 10 points. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez admitted, um, would I have done things differently? Of course. But as a young progressive Latina, I know I was not the target audience for this convention. The target audience for this convention was white moderates who aren't sure who they're voting for in November. Biden did another friendly media interview where he said of the economy, uh, if uh, he faced a virus, I would shut it down. I would listen to the scientists, which should have all of us concerned. Obama admitted deep down Biden has become Bernie Sanders, according to Red State. And knowing he does best when he does little, the Biden campaign plans to keep him grounded. In fact, he will not be seen today. Well, the far right and the far left clashed here in Portland. The melee broke out as about 100 far right activists, including members of the Proud Boys, staged a Back the Blue rally in front of the Multnomah County Justice Center and were met with counter protesters that included members of the anti-fascist group Antifa, according to The Washington Post. But even though police described it as a riot, cops kept their distance and did not intervene. Breathtaking. Portland police have arrested the rioter caught on tape brutally beating a man they pulled from a truck. And that, of course, is good news. Meanwhile, three were shot. Three Maryland police officers ambushed, responding to a home invasion. Fortunately, they were wearing bulletproof vests. On this day in history, A.D. 79, and no, I was not present, James, long dormant Mount Vesuvius erupted, burying the Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum in volcanic ash. An estimated 20,000 people died. I've been to the site, and it really is fascinating to see as you uh, roam the area at the foothill of Mount Vesuvius. 1814, the British set fire to the White House and the Capitol when they invade Washington, D.C. during the War of 1812. 1932, Amelia Earhart embarks on a 19-hour flight from Los Angeles to Newark, New Jersey, making her the first woman to fly solo nonstop from coast to coast. 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower rather, signs the Communist Control Act outlawing the Communist Party in the United States. 2006, the International Astronomical Union declares that Pluto is no longer a full-fledged planet, demoting it to the status of a dwarf planet. That's since been called into question. 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev resigns as the general secretary of the Communist Party after a failed coup attempt to remove him from office. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, the State Department reports that at least 16 Americans working at the U.S. Embassy in Havana become ill in a mysterious health attack. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Kate Brown said if she doesn't see improvement in slowing the spread of COVID-19 across the state, she's going to implement more restrictions. 
This was during a press conference on Friday morning. She threatened that the restrictions could be on businesses like bars and restaurants, as well as travelers coming in from hotspots. She said she's considering adding the restrictions by the end of the month, but there's no hard line for that date. We're doing well, but we have to do better, she said. We're right on track. Now we need to step the gas, a step on the gas. Uh, Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen said during that same press conference on Friday. The state epidemiologist, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, also spoke at the press conference outlining various scenarios over the next four weeks. He said all the models show that we're headed in the right direction. So I guess we should be encouraged. I'm not entirely sure. Meanwhile, Ken Cuccinelli says Portland protesters crossed the residential line, vowing no options are off the table. The pathetic failure of local and state officials was on full display on Saturday in Portland, and the city faced another weekend of violent protests between opposing groups and escalating attacks on law enforcement. Again, from Acting Deputy Homeland Security Secretary Ken Cuccinelli on Sunday. What concerns me this weekend is you now have opposing groups intentionally showing up in the same place at the same time, and clearly the intent is to mix it up. Unrest continued for the 86th night in Portland, with police declaring a riot just after midnight near the Penumbra Kelly Building, which houses public safety officers, according to um, local reports. Rioters were seen hurling rocks, um, bottles, other objects at police officers. President Trump urged leaders in Oregon to request federal assistance to quell the violence on Saturday. We were told that that was the impetus for the violence. They're now gone. It continues. After the city's mayor, Ted Wheeler, and the governor, Kate Brown, both Democrats, criticized his decision to deploy troops to the city to protect federal property in July. Asked whether Trump intends to send federal officers back into the city, Cuccinelli said this president hasn't taken any actions off the table. The tragedy here is this is all controllable if the governor would simply continue to back up. She pulls uh, out her state police, the local police, and brings in her own National Guard. She has over 7,800 National Guardsmen who she refuses to activate to contend with the situation in Portland. Oregon has the resources to solve this problem, and yet they refuse to do so. Well, in Washington, the House of Representatives on Saturday passed a $25 billion funding infusion to the U.S. Postal Service and a bill that also would reverse new cost-cutting measures and ban any efforts to slow down the mail until at least next year. So any effort to cut the cost of the sinking U.S. Postal Service, plans that were made long before this election, have now been put on hold. The vote was 257 to 150, with 26 Republicans joining the Democrats. Democrats called the rare emergency session in the middle of the summer recess because they contend the president and new postmaster general are trying to sabotage the 2020 election by delaying service that could compromise mail-in ballots during the coronavirus pandemic. We are experiencing a global pandemic, and now our U.S. Postal Service is under attack, says uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib. Let it be clear, this administration is waging an authoritarian campaign to sabotage this election by manipulating the Postal Service to suppress our votes. Well, that is patently false. And as a U.S. representative, if she understands anything about the Postal Service and the timing of decisions leading up to this, we talked about them in detail last week. She know that's patent, knows that's patently untrue. Meanwhile, the U.S. Postmaster General uh, Louis DeJoy and Postal Service Board of Governors Chairman Robert Duncan denied claims by the Democrats that recent measures related to mail service were meant to impact the service's ability to handle mail-in voting for November's election. The two men spoke at a House Oversight Committee hearing on Monday entitled Protecting the Timely Delivery of Mail, Medicine, and Mail-in Ballots. 
Republicans criticized Democrats for holding the hearing two days after House Democrats passed the $25 billion bill to provide emergency funding to the service. Here we are having a hearing after a vote. Government Operations Subcommittee Ranking Member Representative Jody Heiss from Georgia said, certainly we have had many votes without bothering to have a hearing, but I don't ever recall having a vote to so-called fix something and then have a hearing afterwards. This is unprecedented. And again, to me, I believe it is an example of political malpractice on the side of the Democrats. It is, after all, an election year. Well, President Trump reacted to the Democrat National Convention and previews the previewed rather the upcoming Republican National Convention in an exclusive interview with Fox News' Steve Hilton. The president will not just be delivering an address on the final night of this week's Republican National Convention to accept his nomination for the president uh, presidential election. He will be appearing every night of the convention. The campaign senior advisor Jason Miller confirmed the reports during an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. You'll have President Trump speaking at various parts of each of the nights. A Trump campaign official says that the president's actual speech will take place on Thursday, but that Trump will be actively engaging in each night of the convention, which is unprecedented. According to The New York Times, Trump is set to appear each night during the 10 p.m. hour. The Trump campaign announced the full roster of speakers for the convention on Sunday. The list shows that other members of the Trump family will appear each night, including First Lady Melania Trump, the president's children Ivanka, Tiffany, Donald Jr. and Eric, and Eric's wife Laura Trump. Other speakers will include Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, former Ambassador Nikki Haley, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Representative Dan Crenshaw, uh, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and UFC President Dana White, among others. The president has accused the Democrats of using COVID to steal our election. So he's stealing it with the Postal Service. They're stealing it with uh, COVID uh, coverage. The president, after an in-person roll call vote where Republicans officially renominated him to represent the party on the ballot in the November 3rd presidential election, which is just a little over a month away, and uh, locking in the GOP ticket for the battle against the Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, took the stage and warned that Democrats are trying to steal the election. What they're doing is using COVID-19 to steal our election, Trump said on Monday in Charlotte, North Carolina, warning also against potential widespread fraud with regard to mail-in ballots for the election. The Biden campaign, in a statement to Fox News during the president's remarks, slammed his claim and said he has no coherent strategy for handling the coronavirus. And again, the back and forth continues. The president on Monday touted his administration's response to the novel coronavirus while blaming China. Well, more than two dozen former Republican members of Congress threw their support behind a Republicans for Biden effort being launched today by the Democratic presidential nominee's um, campaign to engage potential GOP supporters this November. The announcement came on the first day of the Republican National Convention as delegates prepared to formally renominate and now have uh, President Trump. Today, in their respective convention agendas, each party has sought to showcase converted supporters. Joe Biden's list of Republican supporters shared first with Fox News includes a number of well-known Trump critics, most notably former GOP Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona. Last fall, he penned an op-ed urging lawmakers to abandon the president and save their souls as he backed impeachment. He since said he won't vote for Trump, but had uh, held off on a formal Biden endorsement until now. 
Some others on the list had already backed the former vice president, including former Republican Senators Gordon Humphrey of New Hampshire, who is now an independent, and John Warner of Virginia. They're joined by a number of former Republican House members. Former representatives, an emphasis on former Steve Bartlett of Texas, Bill Klinger of Pennsylvania, Tom Coleman of Missouri, Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania, Charles Zhao of Hawaii, Mickey Edwards of Oklahoma, Wayne Gilchrist of Maryland, Jim Greenwood of Pennsylvania, Bob Inglis of South Carolina, Jim Colby of Arizona, Steve Kirkendall of um, California, Ray uh, LaHood of Illinois, who served as Transportation Secretary in the Obama administration, Jim Leach of Iowa, Connie Morella of Maryland, Mike Parker of Mississippi, Jack Quinn of New York, Claudine Schneider of Rhode Island, Chris Shays of Connecticut, Peter Smith of Vermont, Alan Steelman of Texas, Bill Whitehurst of Virginia, Dick Zimmer of New Jersey, and Jim Walsh of New York. A Biden campaign official said that the endorsements are a strong rebuke of the Trump administration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll share a classic interview with uh, Dr. David Duell. He's the author of Disability in Mission, the Church's Hidden Treasure, the book published by Hendrickson Publishing. Coming up, second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the official meetings of the Republican National Convention delegates on Monday morning emphasized the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance after a committee and caucus meeting omitted the words from the pledge during the Democratic National Convention. The omission of under God from the two relatively minor events sparked a backlash from Republicans, including the president, and a flurry of fact checks pointing out that in the four major broadcasts each night, Democrats did use the words under God. But Republicans have still said the omission by the individual speakers, there was no party directive on the words, and the two meetings represents a disrespect Democrats have for people of faith. Well, two Democrat caucus meetings removed under God from the Pledge of Allegiance. It sounded not only strange, but terrible. That's where they're coming from, the president tweeted on Sunday. At the Democratic um, Democrat National Convention, we know that at least two caucuses removed two words from the Pledge of Allegiance. We know, too, that at previous Democrat conventions, a recent one, the word God was almost totally removed from the platform. That could not, would not ever happen here, Peter Goldberg, a delegate from Alaska, said to applause at the Republicans. Monday morning meeting before leading the pledge. We know as Republicans that America must put its full trust and faith in that God in order to do so, so that every American citizen can have the blessing of security and the opportunity for prosperity, the ability to enjoy all of those freedoms that are enshrined in that divinely inspired document, the Constitution of the United States of America, he went on to say. Well, the meetings in which the words under God were left out were one meeting of the Muslim delegates and allies assembly and one LGBTQ caucus meeting caught the attention of the Republicans who made much hay of it. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden uh, spoke uh, at night four uh, of the 2020 Democratic National Convention. Democratic uh, nominee said that if he wins the presidency in November's election, he will raise taxes on Americans who earn more than $400,000 a year. So James Blend, you've uh, got plenty to worry about. In an interview with ABC's David Muir that aired on Sunday, Biden discussed his plan for raising taxes, although there were very few details during the convention. But he'd included these, um, uh, this segment of the population and appeared to include businesses as well, saying, I will raise 
raise taxes for anybody making over $400,000. Let me tell you why I'm going to do it. It's about time they start paying a fair share of the economic responsibility we have. The very wealthy should pay a fair share. Corporations should pay a fair share, end quote. That phrase, fair share, often used rarely defined. Biden referred to businesses that take in close to a trillion dollars and pay no tax at all. After saying this, Muir questioned the wisdom of burdening businesses with new taxes while the economy needs to recover from the coronavirus crisis. Biden said it's smart to tax business that in fact are making excessive amounts of money and paying no tax. When asked, Biden said that there um, would be no new taxes for small businesses or individuals who earn $400,000 or less. The policies he intends to enact, including the tax hike on those making more than $400,000 a year, would raise uh, tax revenue by $3.8 trillion over the next 10 years, according to an analysis by the Tax Foundation. The foundation says Biden's plan would end up collecting roughly $3.2 trillion in actuality when accounting for macroeconomic feedback efforts. Or rather, effects. President Trump warned in a recent Fox Business interview that a Biden presidency would bring about the biggest tax increase in history. That will certainly come up in one of the three, if not all three, of the presidential debates that are just around the corner. New York Attorney General Letitia James is investigating the Trump organization for allegedly inflating the value of their assets to secure loans, according to a legal document filed on Monday. The attorney general's office is probing statements of financial condition sent to lenders regarding assets and debts, the document noted. The office began its investigation after former Trump fixer Michael Cohen told Congress in 2019 that the organization had used the statements to inflate its net worth in communications with lenders. And while much of the information in the legal filing is redacted, it did reveal that James is investigating financial statements connected to at least three Trump properties, including a building on Wall Street in Manhattan, an estate in Westchester County, New York, and a Los Angeles golf course. Eric Trump, the president's son, was summoned by the New York AG's office for an interview in July, but refused to appear, citing what his lawyer said were rights afforded to every individual under the Constitution. The new legal filing has, uh, was made in an attempt to compel Eric Trump to appear for an interview. The Trump Organization, uh, Alan Garten said, has done nothing wrong. The Trump Organization's chief legal counsel it said in a statement, James continued harassment of the company as uh, uh, we approach the election and filing of this motion on the first day of the Republican National Convention once again confirms that this investigation is all about politics, he said. Well, last week, President Donald Trump's former campaign head and chief strategist, Steve Bannon, uh, was arrested and charged with money laundering and conspiracy to commit fraud. The charges stem from an alleged gifting scheme in which Bannon and three other funneled three others rather funneled money from the We Build the Wall, the nonprofit they started in 2018 to profit themselves. Former federal prosecutor Andrew, Andrew McCarthy explained that the scheme is big but not complicated. According to the indictment in late 2018, Brian Colfage, uh, with the help of Timothy Shea and others, established a campaign originally called We the People Build the Wall through GoFundMe, described in the indictment as crowdfunding website. Well, the concept was that private citizens would contribute money to the to be donated to the government for the construction of a wall on the southern border. The campaign was instantly successful as a fundraising vehicle, quickly raking in about $17 million in commitments and ultimately $25 million. For the money to be released, GoFundMe required an entity into which it could be transferred, as well as assurances that the funds would be dedicated to the stated purpose of the campaign. 
to help him, Cole Fage, brought Bannon and Andrew Badalato. All in all, McCarthy uh, continued, Cole Fage is alleged to have received over $350,000 and to have spent it on home renovations, boat payments, a luxury SUV, a golf cart, jewelry, cosmetic surgery, personal tax payments, and credit card debt. More than a million dollars is said to have been diverted to Bannon's nonprofit uh, One. Besides paying Colfage, Bannon is accused of spending donor funds on personal uses and expenses unrelated to We Build the Wall. The four defendants collectively received hundreds of thousands of dollars in donor funds, the indictment says, which they each used to pay for a variety of personal expenses, including travel, hotels, consumer goods, and personal credit card debt. For his part, Bannon pled not guilty and asserted, these charges are nonsense. This is a political hit job. Everybody knows I love to fight. I'm in this for the long haul, and I'm in this for the fight, end quote. President Trump responded to the news by declaring that he didn't like the We Build the Wall nonprofit as he thought it was being done for showboating reasons. He asserted that he has not been involved with Bannon for a very long period of time. Recall that Bannon exited the White House in August of 2017. Bannon has long proven himself to be, uh, well, a character of um, some question, as evidenced by his dalliance with the alt-right group. As Mark Alexander observed following the uh, Charlottesville protests in 2017, Bannon did to Andrew Breitbart's popular website what Jeff Bezos is doing to the uh, once respectable Washington Post, adulterating its content to comport with extremist political views. Breitbart News described Richard Spencer's website as the center of alt-right thought. And in 2016, Bannon declared Breitbart the platform for the alt-right. Spencer concurred, noting that Breitbart has acted as a gateway to alt-right ideas and writers. One final thought, the arrest and charging of Bannon does much to poke holes in the oft-repeated claim by Democrats that Attorney General William Barr is a Trump stooge. Time and again, Barr has proven that he is primarily beholden to the rule of law, applying it fairly, no matter who may get caught up on the wrong side of it. Bannon being, as I mentioned, an example of that. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from uh, Dr. David Duell. He's the author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden treasure. Well, Tropical Storm Marco is weakening today, yet it still brings the risk of heavy rain, storm surge, strong winds, tornadoes. The system is moving inland. Mark's, uh, Marco rather is forecast to move west along the Louisiana and Texas coast Tuesday and Wednesday. Tropical Storm Laura is south of Cuba. It's going to move into the Gulf of Mexico tonight. Unlike Marco, where conditions weren't favorable for the storm to strengthen, Laura is going to move into very favorable conditions for strengthening and will become a very dangerous hurricane, we're told. We're still uncertain about exactly where and when Laura may make landfall, but right now it appears the Louisiana-Texas coast, just like Marco, they need to be on the alert. Well, heavy rain, strong winds, storm surge, inland flooding from Laura could be deadly. All interests along the Gulf need to watch the path of Laura over the next few days. Across the West, wildfire danger is still a big problem. Smoke is blanketing much of the region, and red flag warnings are still up in northern and central California, as well as southern Oregon and northern Nevada. Dry thunderstorms are going to add to the danger for fires to spread, while air quality advisories are also up for many states due to the smoke and poor visibility. Excessive heat warnings are in effect for the southwest. Temperatures also are soaring across the plains and Midwest into the Great Lakes. 
with highs in the 90s to 100-degree mark. Strong to severe thunderstorms, meanwhile, are possible from the Great Lakes into the Northeast. Bad timing for new challenges. Well, people who live in the foothills and Dry Creek Valley outside Hellsburg uh, were nervously awaiting the arrival of a new weather threat last night. The horizon was filled with the smoke from last uh, last week's dry lightning storms that sparked the massive Waldbridge fire. The National Weather Service has issued a red flag fire warning for the area until 5 p.m. today. The uh, Dry Creek Valley residents are on edge as this new weather threat is closing in. Well, a plume of unstable weather from the remnants of Hurricane uh, Genevieve was streaming into the region, bringing with it gusty winds and dry lightning. Elevated moisture, instability from the former hurricane will move over the region this weekend through the early part of next week and bring the threat of elevated thunderstorms across northern California. The National Weather Service is warning a low pressure system off the coast may enhance the strength of these thunderstorms, allowing some to develop frequent lightning strikes and gusty erratic outflow winds. Meanwhile, there are several wildfires that are blackening the skies across Oregon. Multiple uh, fires are continuing to burn in several areas, uh, some of which sparked by natural causes like lightning, others by humans. The nearly 4,000-acre frog fire is burning through uh, Crook County's, uh, I never get this right, Ochoco uh, National Forest is 35% contained, according to the Oregon Department of Forestry. Firefighters are battling the frog fire. They've completed a control line around the entire perimeter of the blaze. That's good news. No evacuations have been uh, ordered in the area. However, several roads have been closed off to the public. ODF said the flight restrictions are also in place over that area. In the Deschutes National Forest, crews have uh, yet to contain the Green Ridge Fire near Camp Sherman, where more than 300 firefighters have been working to douse the more than 4,100-acre fire. ODF says Level 1 Be Ready evacuations orders have been put into place for the Three Rivers subdivision, Metolius Arm Lake Homes and the Monty and Perry South Campgrounds, and in the Mount Hood National Forest, the White River Fire has blackened about 1,102 acres. Fire officials predict full containment happening within the next week and a half. So that's good news. The White River Fire started last week, roughly 13 miles southeast of government camp. ODF has uh, no homes, uh, say rather, no homes are currently threatened by that White River Fire. However, a number of trails are closed by the White River Fire. Crane Creek, Crane Prairie, Boulder, uh, Boulder Lake, Forest Creek, Hidden Meadows, Bonnie Meadows, three, three Miles, and all of Rock Creek OHV uh, area has been closed and is impacted because of at least 14 wildfires of 100 acres or more are actively burning throughout the state. The Department of Environmental Quality extended an air quality advisory in the areas of Klamath County, Lake County, Jackson, Deschutes, Jefferson, Warm Springs, Malheur, Harney, and Baker counties. Well, the Food and Drug Administration on Sunday issued an emergency use authorization for transfusions into COVID-19 patients of plasma donated by those who have recovered from the disease, citing data showing a significant, up to 35 percent in some cases, reduction in mortality rates. Well, Americans who have recovered from the disease caused by the coronavirus that emerged in Wuhan, China last year, are being urged to donate plasma. 
the liquid component of blood for injection into COVID-19 patients. Speaking at the White House, the president, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn and Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar all voiced optimism about the convalescent plasma treatment as America and the world continues to confront the deadly respiratory disease. This is a powerful therapy that transfuses very, very strong antibodies from the blood of recovered patients to help treat patients battling a current infection, the president said. Today's actions will dramatically expand access to this treatment. The government had provided $48 million to fund a Mayo Clinic study testing the efficacy of convalescent plasma. The FDA, MIT, Harvard, and Mount Sinai Hospital had also found the treatment to be very effective method of fighting this horrible disease. Well, based on the science and the data, the FDA rather has made the independent determination that the treatment is safe and very effective. Azar said work on evaluating the treatment had begun in early April. The data we gathered suggests that patients who were treated early in their disease course within three days of being diagnosed with plasma containing high levels of antibodies benefited the most from the treatment. So we're hopeful that that may, in fact, be the case. President Donald Trump projects that he's on track to win confirmation of more than 300 new conservative judges by the end of the year. And in the next four years, the president predicts as many as five vacancies could open up On the U.S. Supreme Court. By the time we're finished, we will have an excess of 300 federal judges confirmed, including the Court of Appeals and, of course, two very exceptional Supreme Court justices. Trump said on Friday in remarks about his success in seating new judges to the Council for National Policy. It's a conservative group in Arlington, Virginia. I've had two Supreme Court picks, the president said. Some presidents have had none because you generally pick them young and they last a long time. Appointing conservative judges has been a key part of his legacy since he took office in January of 2017, most visibly Supreme Court Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. He also won Senate confirmation of more than 200 judges, of which 53 were appeals court judges, according to uh, the Heritage Foundation's judicial tracker. I can tell you it's driving them crazy, Trump said of his political opponents. In coming years, he warned more vacancies will occur on the high court. We could have two or three to four, maybe even five, but four is not a stretch at all. That would mean the entire balance of the court doesn't just shift, it becomes dominant. Well, the four oldest justices are Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 87, who was appointed by President Bill Clinton, Stephen Breyer, 82, also a Clinton appointee, Clarence Thomas, 72, appointed by President George Herbert Walker Bush, and Samuel Alito, 70, appointed by President George W. Bush. Uh, The president, uh, his judicial confirmations achieved with key help from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are well in excess of the number of federal judges confirmed in the fourth year in the White House for Barack Obama, both the elder and younger Bush. Uh, Bush's rather and Ronald Reagan, according to the judicial tracker. Trump is roughly on par with Clinton's fourth year, which saw 203 judges confirmed. The tracker's most recent tally shows Trump with 202 confirmations. As he has done somewhat sarcastically in the past, the president on Friday credited his predecessor with leaving him so many vacancies to fill. Don't forget President Obama. They said he was a great president. Well, You can't be a great president when um, much of what he has done, we've undone. You can't be great president when you leave at least 142 vacant seats. Well, there's speculation about the future of Kim Jong-un and the role that his younger sister is likely to play. Kim Yo-young, Kim Jong-un's potential successor in North Korea, 
Who is she? We'll talk a bit about that when we come back after the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour, we'll hear from Dr. David Duell. His book is titled Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. We're going to share with you in our next couple of segments an interview with David Duell. Dr. Duell is the author of Disability in Mission, the Church's Hidden Treasure. Hope you'll enjoy that conversation coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, there's been a lot of speculation about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's health. Uh, The focus has shifted to his elusive sister, who may be the next in line to assume the head of his dynasty or the Kim dynasty. Even Kim Yo-yong's age is a mystery. She's rumored to be 36 years old, approximately four years younger than her brother, and reportedly is the youngest child of the former leader, Kim Yong-il. Well, her first public appearance was at her father's funeral in 2011. Nobody had seen her up until that point. Since then, she's worked quietly in the background of Kim Jong-un's regime, even accompanying him in 2018 as he met South Korean leader Moon Jae-in during the historic summit between the nations. Well, it's rather interesting. Just months beforehand, she attended the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, becoming the first member of North Korea's uh, ruling party, a ruling family rather, to visit the region since the end of the Korean War in 53. She later attended a highly publicized lunch with Moon Jae-in. Well, Kim Yong, Kim Yo-young uh, would be the first woman to rule over North Korea, which has uh, built up its nuclear stronghold despite the rest of the country living in poverty. Seoul reportedly has denied that Kim Jong-un's health was in dire peril, even as unconfirmed rumors and media reports suggest he was in a vegetative state after undergoing heart surgery. You'll recall that some time back. Well, it's now reemerged that he's in a coma. Well, Kim Yo-young's reputation has suggested she would rule much in the vein of her brother, who has uh, represented the third generation of their family to lead North Korea. No doubt she has been groomed to assume that position at some point. In a rare public statement this past March, she criticized South Korea's presidential Blue House for urging North Korea to cease nuclear weapons testing in an effort to quell tension in the region. Kim Yo-young currently has uh, served as the first vice department director of the Workers' Party Central Committee. U.S. officials placed her on a blacklist in 2017 for human rights abuses. And yet again, the rumor is Kim Jong-un is in a coma, although that is unconfirmed. But she is emerging with more uh, authority and more responsibility, although she answers ultimately, we are told, to her older brother. When the New York Times Magazine published the 1619 Project last year, supporters hailed this retelling of America's founding as a woke counter-narrative meant to correct the historical record. Yet in recent weeks, the author, the lead editor, has stressed that her project to reframe history is not the same as history. Clear enough? I'm referring to Nicole Hannah-Jones. Well, even Americans who haven't read the 1619 Project, a series of written work on the legacy of slavery, know the project was launched with fanfare. And the rollout continues. A series of books are to follow. A podcast is available and public schools are using the material. Lionsgate and Oprah Winfrey intend to adapt the project for film and TV, although it's not history. For the 1619 editors to now say, presume not that I am the thing I was, should make us suspicious of the project's future. Shakespeare's um, Hal said as much to his former drinking companion Falstaff and Henry VI, Part two, and the audience can 
uh, for the presumption because we know his uh, victory uh, is coming in Henry V. Well, the next act, however, for the 1619 project may be less promising as the project's creators spread it across more media and entertainment platforms in times. It's a partners at the Pulitzer Center. Hannah Jones have already said 1619 should be considered history, even though it is not and declared so by its editors. For example, in an introduction to the 1619 project school curriculum, the Pulitzer Center says the project aims to reframe their students understanding of U.S. history by considering 1619 as the start of this nation's story. Then for generations, we have not been adequately taught this history which is not history, we're told by its editors. Pause to consider the repeated use of the word history. Uh, For her part, Hannah Jones has said in at least one interview, uh, but I didn't want it to be a history. Uh, Later in this same interview, she says, um, if we were going to undertake this project to try to tell this 400-year sweep of history again, note the term history, Uh, of people who have been so intensely marginalized both in society and in popular media that the pressure to do it justice was very high, end quote. Well, Hannah Jones failed to catch herself again in another interview saying, I think um, it's really important that we get a more accurate history, that we teach children to challenge the given narrative to uh, question, to have an understanding of the American story that is more inclusive and that is more realistic. History or not, a group of award-winning historians, including Dr. Alan C. Gueslow, senior research scholar at the Council of the Humanities in Princeton, began um, citing inaccuracies in the project's, uh, project shortly after its release. In response to one letter to the editor in the Times from a group of professors, the Times continued to muddy the debate over history but refused to make substantive corrections. Though we may not be historians, we take seriously the responsibility of accurately presenting history to readers. History that is not history that's been rebuked by actual historians. Well, the time offered a modest correction in March to one of the project's assertions, but this followed still more public criticism from a professor who reviewed the project prior to release and had her key correction ignored all of which she explained in an essay for Politico. Writing in The Atlantic, Princeton professor Sean Willens, author of No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding, says that he and historians he collaborated with wholeheartedly support the stated goal to educate widely on slavery and its long-term consequences. But no matter how the history is interpreted and related, this goal cannot be forwarded through falsehoods, distortions, and significant omissions, which is precisely what the uh, 1619 Project has done and its chief editor has admitted to doing. Well, one of the scandals of the 1990s that uh, never quite got off the ground the way Democrats had hoped it, uh, it would, um, uh, much the, uh, uh, with how much the Red Cross paid its CEO at the time of Elizabeth Dole running um, for, for office, uh, who had been a labor secretary for the George Herbert Walker Bush administration and was the wife of then-Senator Bob Dole soon thereafter. And the 1996 Republican presidential nominee, the Red Cross, paid Mrs. Dole $200,000 a year, or about $380,000 in 2020 dollars, a $15,000 bumper over what it had paid her predecessor. She donated her first-year salary as a goodwill gesture. But the decline and fall of the National Rifle Association was intended to be and is intended to be something similar. There was never any serious argument that there was anything improper about Mrs. Dole's salary. But that kind of of paycheck just feels unseemly to certain people, mostly um, 
those who do not themselves make a lot of money and believe that they really should. Well, against that backdrop, it's important to understand that there is at least there are three things going on in the New York Attorney General's uh, attempt to have the National Rifle Association legally dissolved. The first one uh, is that uh, these things are it's kind of a political jihad that may or may not end with the NRA having its charter revoked. But that certainly will subject it to ruinous litigation costs and disruption, a transparent effort to sideline it before the November election. Now, the second is a longer term effort to discredit the NRA by appealing to the same kind of envy based politics that were deployed against Mrs. Dole all those years ago. And the third, currently being treated almost as an afterthought is a legitimate investigation into potential financial wrongdoing at the NRA, of which there is more than a whiff. NRA insiders have long complained about a culture of self-dealing and financial shenanigans at the organization, and there is much that looks fishy. If it's true that LaPierre, the NRA CEO, did in fact use another company to pass on personal expenses to the NRA while camouflaging that compensation from the organization and the IRS, then he would very likely be found guilty of a number of state and federal felonies. That is a real charge. The allegations involve the NRA's relationship with Ackerman McQueen, an advertising agency that long functioned as an effective subsidiary of the group until the two had a bitter falling out and the NRA accused Ackerman McQueen of fraud, according to the New York lawsuit. A practice decades old between LaPierre and Ackerman McQueen's co-founder that would continue until the two companies sever ties in 2019 ensure that Ackerman McQueen would pay for a variety of non-contractual out-of-pocket expenses for LaPierre and other NRA executives and pass those expenses through to the NRA. The NRA leadership regularly used this pass-through arrangement where expenses would be paid for by the NRA without written approvals, receipts, or supporting business uh, purpose documentation to conceal private travel and other costs that were largely personal in nature. Ackerman McQueen would aggregate that um, uh, the expenses into a lump sum amount and provide no details on the nature or purpose of the expenses while billing the NRA for them. The invoice, invoices rather only typically included a one-line description that read out-of-pocket expenses and included an invoice total amount. The expenses billed to the NRA for out-of-pocket expenses didn't comply with IRS requirements and as a result, all such expenses should have been included by the NRA in taxable personal income for LaPierre and other recipients. Well, some of the other accusations are a good deal less convincing. For example, LaPierre apparently spent a lot of money on car services and private security, but there isn't anything inherently wrong with that. Indeed, the private security seemed prudent. If the NRA wants to provide its executives with those services, then that's between the NRA, its board, its members. Unless there's some aggravating circumstance, that simply is not a matter for the New York Attorney General. Well, the NRA is, among other things, a victim of its own ambitions and of mission creep, if you will. For years, it was a sportsman's club with a modest sideline and advocacy. Eventually, it discovered that there was a lot more juice in gun politics than in gun safety classes, and it transformed itself into a political powerhouse, but not without reason, arguably the most effective organization of its kind. Well, in spite of the maliciously propagated myth to the contrary, the NRA has never been a particularly big political spender. In the hotly contested 2016 election cycle, it was not even among the top 500 political contributors, and its total contributions amounted to barely a million dollars. The American Federation of Teachers makes $16 um, in contributions for every one con uh, contributed 
by the NRA and its twin, the National Education Association, makes another 11 in contributions for every $1 contribution by the NRA. Power comes and always has come from its membership. We'll continue to follow that story, the lawsuit, as it continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from uh, my guest, David, Dr. David Duell, the author of Disability in Mission, the classic, uh, rather, the church's um, hidden treasure, a classic interview, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest says that weakness is central to the redemptive plan of our all-powerful God. It is the means of success, not failure, when Christians are weak. My next guest is the author of Disability in Mission, and it highlights the needs for the church to see God's purposes through different lenses. Our weakness is God's theater for displaying his strength before a watching world. Throughout the Bible, we see God deliberately choosing people who feel unworthy, unwell, disabled, or otherwise deficient. Moses, Gideon, David, Peter, Paul, each of them had physical, moral, or emotional baggage. But in Christ, paradigms of power and weakness were turned upside down. Well, Disability and Mission is a look at changing the way we look at mission, but also an encouragement that no matter who we are, God desires to use us in our imperfections. He actually delights in those imperfections. Well, David Duell is Senior Research Fellow for the Christian Institute on Disability and serves as catalyst for disability concerns with the Luzon Movement. He gained his MA from Cornell and um, Master's in Philosophy and PhD from the University of Liverpool. He is the founding editor for the Journal for Christian Institute on Disability, is a member of the United Nations Disability Data Working Group, and was appointed Region Disability um, Integration Lead for the Red Cross. He is married, has four adult children, and joins us today to talk about a very special book, Disability in Mission, the Church's Hidden Treasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Georgie. Obviously, this reflects your life work, but I want to ask the fundamental question, what what led you into focusing on the significance of disability in ministry and how we should change our perspective on um, what being able uh, actually looks like? Yes, thank you for asking that question. Uh, like many people, I'm been I've been strongly influenced by my family. My wife's family served as missionaries in Nigeria until uh, my wife and her two siblings developed malaria, and her sister developed a form of cerebral malaria that left her with a high fever and uh, intellectual disability. So the family came home from the mission field, and uh, through a number of circumstances, they tried to go back to the field. They were not able. Uh, Even in my own life, uh, we have four children, and uh, my second child, Joanna has Down syndrome. When she was born, we were planning on going to China as missionaries. And uh, I asked the doctor, I said, is this a good idea? Uh, Will I find the medical help I need for her? And he said, I wouldn't. That was a simple response. So our our book is really a, a passionate request for mission leaders, uh, mission board leaders, pastors, to consider people with disabilities as tools in God's hands, and he works through them rather than in spite of them on the mission field. So a husband or a wife with a disability or one of their children with a disability is not seen as a deficit but as an asset. You make the point early on in the book that through weakness that we all share in common to varying degrees, that the mission of God is advanced 
Um, talk a little bit about how that works, because, again, all of us have a degree of weakness. It's built into us. Um, and that that varies in terms of degree. Uh, but that is um, used to advance God's mission. Yeah, great, another great question. There, there's a common saying that we should send the best and the brightest to the mission field. Now, I don't deny that we should uh, send the best and the brightest, whatever that means. But uh, this is code for sending the strongest, that is, those that might depend on their looks mm-hmm. or their talents. Um, the seeing weakness through the biblical lens, we will look beyond its natural power uh, to, uh, to recognize that only God can enable. It's in our dependency, all of us, regardless of whether we have a disability, we have a disease of some sort, or whether we have the, the natural weakness that comes from being created. Uh, God tells us in, the, in Scripture that there's a natural weakness that comes even with creation, and then comes the fall when uh, the world is cursed, the universe is cursed, and there's an additional measure of, of weakness. So at the end of it all, we're very weak, Georgine. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we want to believe that it's through our achievements and degrees and all of these things that we become capable and ready to use when, in fact, God says, I use the weak things of this world and the foolish things. Yeah, yeah. You also make the point that God uses weakness to disable pride. We so often rely on our capacity uh, to give us a sense of our ability to influence and make a difference when, in fact, that may be a, a hindrance to us in some ways. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, in the book, what we've tried to do uh, is create a reasoned appeal, not, not a scolding to the people we want to address uh, in mission boards and so on, but a reasoned appeal so that they will see through the stories of the individuals whose testimonies are recorded in the book Uh, how God actually used weakness to further the mission and further the work of God and bring glory to God as a result. So for some reason, and I think it's because we take our cues from the culture of the world, Mm -hmm. we've learned to rely on the wrong things, and God calls us back to weakness and his enablement. The book has a foreword by Johnny Erickson Tata, and throughout the book, and I really appreciated this, it's not just theoretical, but you tell the stories of individuals who would fall under the category of disabled, according to our definition today, and how God has used them in mission, giving us a glimpse into the possibility as we look around in our congregations at people that we might have assumed are, are not in a position to make much of a difference at all. That's correct. In fact, uh, even though we have focused on, on missions and uh, cross-cultural missions, this would be true of our churches in the United States for American listeners and perhaps Canadian listeners. Um, we just don't want to recognize, uh, because we've taken our cues from our culture, that the people with disabilities in our midst are very capable of ministering. God tells us in his word many times that he's gifted everyone in some way. And the goal of the church should be to try to understand and appreciate the giftedness of people with disabilities. And I, I would only go back to the example you just provided, Georgine. Johnny Erickson Tata has in, inspired mm-hmm. and encouraged so many people through her suffering. And uh, it's her disability that has contributed to her 
dependency on the Lord, Johnny would say. And as a result, she's able to do these things that those of us who have no disability really cannot do as effectively. In the first two chapters of the book, you focus on passages from Scripture that help us appreciate how weakness, vulnerability, and disability uh, embody the, the gospel and describe how weakness is central to the redemptive plan of our all-powerful God. Can you talk a bit about some of the scriptures that uh, might help us to understand God's, God's plan and purpose in using all of us in our weakness? Yes, I think the best example, because of the detail that's given, is Moses in Exodus 3 through 15. God commissioned Moses to go on a mission to Israel and to Pharaoh as well. Moses, having some form of inability or disability, we really don't know what it was, but we know that there was something. Uh, He rejected God's dispatch, saying that he was unable to fulfill the mission. God's response focused on his own sovereign control over disability and weakness. God says, who made the deaf and the blind and so forth? God says, I did. And God can overcome weakness because he made the disability in the first place. Regardless, Moses will not speak to God, uh, speak so God accommodates Moses' inability by using Aaron as Moses' mouthpiece. If we go back and ask the question, couldn't God have found a better spokesperson than someone who basically used the excuse of saying, I can't speak because of a disability? Sure, he could have. But God wanted to use Moses with his disability. And so God used Moses and God appointed Aaron. God's the one who suggested Aaron uh, serve as Moses' mouthpiece. He used them to uh, lead Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land where Moses had to stop before going over to the promised land, of course. So just think about this. The man who could not speak publicly to people first of all, had no trouble speaking with God. Hmm. But what is more, at the end of Moses' life, he wrote two beautiful pieces of lyric poetry, the Song of the Sea and the Song of Moses, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses, who could not speak to Israel, sang these songs as he led Israel in worship of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful account of weakness, because in the end, Moses speaks. He speaks through singing. He speaks through the message of the the songs that he wrote. And God's God's purpose is accomplished. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Dr. David Duell. He's the co-author, along with Nathan G. John, of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Duell, he's the co-author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure, the foreword written by Johnny Erickson Tata. Now, in the book, uh, or I should say in our culture, we uh, aspire to be able-bodied, fit, and strong. But you write that there are benefits to weakness or disability, and that may not ring um, easily in the ears of those of us in 21st century America. Tell us what you mean by that, that there, there are benefits to weakness or disability. Thank you, Georgine. Probably the greatest benefit that we are aware of in Scripture is that God enables a person who is weak. He's the one who provides the strength, and ultimately then he receives the glory, and that's his plan. That's the way he's chosen to do things. So, I mean, 
you you mentioned a number of people in Scripture who experienced God's enabling uh, Joseph, Moses, David, mm-hmm. uh, in comparison with Saul, Ruth, Esther, Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, all of these in one place or another talked about how they were inadequate, how they were weak. But what they remind us is none of us are inadequate. In fact, there was a book written uh, back uh, several decades by Francis Schaeffer called No Little People. And his point is there are no little people in God's work, in God's kingdom. He uses everyone, and we can find encouragement in that. You write about um, the idea of healthy vulnerability. Um, What do you mean by that, and how can we cultivate that in a way that is honoring to God and acknowledges the truth of our absolute dependence on Him? Yeah, Healthy vulnerability leaves the door open for God to come in and add His power to a ministry need. So, for example, uh, someone asks us to teach a Sunday school class or someone asks us to go door-to-door witnessing, and we're scared. We don't feel like we have the ability, and we're probably right about that. We don't have the ability. But with healthy vulnerability, we leave the door open, and we take the challenge, and we try, and God so often surprises us by enabling us and giving us His strength. In the book, uh, throughout the book, you tell the stories of those who are disabled or less able and how God has used them and called them into ministry. One in particular that I enjoyed was um, the story of Paul Kasanga and Olive Doak. Um, Their weakness was the very basis of their service to each other, to Christ and to the nation of Zambia. Can you tell their story? Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yes. Paul Kasanga was a Zambian leper whose body deteriorated to the point in which he could no longer walk or use what was left of his limbs. Uh, He used basically stubs for fingers to turn the pages of his Bible. But like the Apostle Paul, he was named after. God used Paul's weakness to empower him for ministry. Alabdoka was an extraordinary mission woman who came alongside Paul to help him with is preaching, teaching, and counseling married couples. It's interesting. Neither Paul nor Olive ever married, but at the same time, Paul was able to counsel and Olive was able to assist uh, couples who would line up at his tent. And uh, he would sit in his wheelchair, thumbing his Bible with uh, basically stubs for fingers, and he would help them with their needs and their marriage problems. In hindsight, God used them, Paul and Olive, to light the fires of evangelical revival in Zambria that resulted in around 80% of the entire population coming to Christ. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. In Chapter 8, you write about Jeff McNair and um, disability and short-term mission teams, which seems like an impossible combination, and yet you tell the story of Jeff McNair drawing on his experience on a short-term mission trip that included five people with disability. Yes, Jeff uh, Jeff is a close friend, and Jeff has actually led a number of short-term missions with people that were profoundly disabled. You, you wouldn't imagine that they would be able to get to the place, and yet he takes them to places uh, where it would be difficult to begin with for any of us. And uh, some wonderful stories of the way that God has worked in their lives, not only of the people with disabilities who are given the opportunities, but people who went with them along with them, and saw what God did through them. It's a wonderful chapter that Mm -hmm. Jeff has written. 
Now, in the book, you're encouraging mission organizations to uh, take a, a more considerate look at those who are less abled um, by today's standard and to see the value in in that fact and in them as individuals and their capacity for ministry. What do you hope that will um, will produce within mission organizations in terms of uh, seeing uh, disabled people as a, a treasure to the church and a treasure to the uh, Great Commission? Yes, that that is an excellent question, and that is the question that we tried to answer in writing the book. But what I hope these church leaders will see, and we we write the book passionately and appreciatively of their work. We mm-hmm. don't mean it's not a scolding. No, it's not. It's very respectful. They, we hope that they will see that these people with disabilities were used incredibly on the mission field, and today we have. Uh, seen such breakthroughs in technology, transportation, communication. Um, The common, the average mission board today has a person uh, called uh, personal care, where all that person does is focus on the needs of families, uh, helps them. It's kind of like a human resources position. But what they do is they help them with their needs and they help them be successful on the mission field. With, with such a position today, many more people could go with disabilities and uh, with the help of member care, which is what it's called, uh, they'll succeed. God will use them because it's already happening. I always cite as my favorite example, SIM, uh, and the fact that they have uh, a person doing that very thing. And she wrote one of the final chapters of the book. Uh, Deanna Ritchie uh, is uh, a person that serves in such a role, and she's she really describes how well we're able to take care of people with disabilities on the mission field today. Yeah. In another chapter, you uh, uh, talk about not necessarily going, but a home-based setting in which someone with disabilities is able to engage in mission. Natalie Flickner's um, multiple disabilities have given her empathy and knowledge that has um, become a strong and powerful advocate for children with disabilities. Tell a bit of her story, uh, which emphasizes the fact that if God is calling you to go, that, that may be the case, but there's also opportunity to stay and engage in mission. Yes, Nat was born a missionary with a missionary's heart. She was also born with a disability, pretty significant disability. But God has used her to reach around the world through writing Sunday school material for people with disabilities in other cultures. And uh, she's an incredible writer. And just this past year, she was able to go on a missions trip. And uh, we all celebrated that major accomplishment where Nat, who had always dreamed of going was able to go finally. Mm-hmm. And she'll continue her writing ministry. She's a, an outstanding writer. Well, the book is titled Disability and Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure, and I found it inspiring, um, the possibilities, uh, and, and to see people with disabilities and those of us, all of us with weakness, through different eyes from the perspective that God gives us in Scripture— really helps us to recognize the value that each one of us has in the kingdom of God and even in the Great Commission. Uh, the book is written by my guest, uh, Dr. David Duell, and his co-author, Nathan John, the foreword by Johnny Erickson Tata. What do you hope um, this will do in terms of influencing mission organizations in uh, considering uh, and accommodating those with disabilities in mission? I hope, thank you, Georgine, I hope that what happens as a result of people reading the book and talking about the book is that we will allow people with disabilities 
everywhere in the world, not just on the mission field, but everywhere, to use their God-given gifts to serve the church like they want to do. They are called and gifted, just like the rest mm-hmm. of the population, and they they should be given that opportunity to serve. And so we pray that uh, 10 years from now, we'll be able to look back and say we made some progress because there'll be more pastors, more missionaries, more deacons, more Sunday school teachers, more youth leaders with disabilities serving. Absolutely. And if you doubt it possible, disability and mission, the church's hidden treasure, uh, will provide inspiration and great examples. Uh, Dr. Duell, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me in this show, Georgina. Appreciate it. A lot. By the way, the book is uh, published by Hendrickson, and you should be able to find that online. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new study. It says singing at certain levels is no more likely to spread the coronavirus than talking. That's according to a study released by researchers in the UK. Researchers at the University of Bristol examined how much aerosols and droplets were generated by 25 singers who performed breathing, coughing, singing, and speaking exercises. Well, the researchers found that while the aerosol mass produced rose steeply with an increase in volume of singing and speaking, singing didn't produce substantially more aerosol than speaking at a similar volume. Jonathan Reed, professor of physical chemistry at the University of Bristol and one of the researchers, said in a statement on Thursday that the research showed that singing was safer than previously assumed. A study has shown the transmission of viruses and small aerosol particles generated when someone sings or speaks are equally possible with both activities generating similar numbers of particles. Our research, uh, he went on to say, has provided a rigorous scientific basis for COVID-19 recommendations for arts venues to operate safely for both the performers and audience by ensuring that spaces are appropriately ventilated to reduce the risk of airborne transmission. Well, Dr. Julian Tang, an expert in respiratory sciences with the University of Leicester, told the BBC that there was still risk, especially for group singing. The risk is amplified when a group of singers are singing together, singing to an audience, whether in church or concert halls or theaters. It is a nice study, but not exactly representative of the real whole choir dynamic, which really needs further study to truly assess the risk of such large volume, synchronized singing, vocalizations, and exhalations. Well, Dr. Tang said we don't want choir members getting infected and potentially dying from COVID-19 whilst doing what they love. Well, as churches in North America and in Europe reopen with the pandemic, some governments have prohibited singing during worship with the intention of helping to curb the spread of COVID-19. In early May, for example, Germany allowed for its churches to hold services. However, it came with a ban on handshakes and singing and also socially distanced audience uh, attendance. Well, these singing bands haven't been without controversy. Three churches in California sued the governor in July over similar prohibitions. Defendants lack a compelling, legitimate, and rational interest in banning singing and chanting only in places of worship, while allowing the same at similar secular gatherings and secular businesses, the lawsuit stated in part. Well, even if the worship ban were supported by a compelling interest, which it is not, the ban does not employ the least restrictive means to accomplish the government's purported interest and is not narrowly tailored to that interest. The back and forth continues. The information can be confusing, but that's the latest out of the UK. Well, five years ago, it was in the spring. I stood next to a friend of mine who had waited until she was in her 50s to marry for the very first time. She had done what scripture says we ought to do, wait. 
She did so with integrity and purpose. I was so delighted having prayed for her for decades. In fact, um, I was a Sunday school teacher in my teenage years. She was one of my favorite students. I stood with her and her new husband at their wedding and rejoiced. Well, fast forward five years and some 21 days ago, her husband fell ill. No, it wasn't COVID-19. It had nothing to do with that. There were a series of events that included a stroke, heart failure, difficulty reviving him, and he passed away just a few days ago. Tomorrow, I plan to be right here behind the mic, but my friend's funeral is going to be held in the Seattle area tomorrow. She waited many, many years. She was married for five, and now she's grieving the loss of her husband. Because of COVID-19, she's not able to have a normal service in a regular church building, so there'll be a graveside service tomorrow at 11 in Seattle, where we will grieve the loss of her dear husband, who knew the Lord and rejoice in his grace and goodness, knowing that he is in God's presence, free of the pain and anguish he suffered before his death, and that we will see him again. That said, I'll be gone tomorrow. I had planned, as uh, was the case with J- James, planned on taking some vacation time Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I'll be gone additionally the remainder of the week. If you think of it, would you say a prayer for my friend Lisa? The love of her life, Gary, passed away. We fear not for his eternal future, but there's a great deal of grief in saying goodbye, as we all know, to those we love dearest. I'll be back on Monday, but I should warn you that I've been invited to travel to Los Angeles to moderate a, um, a panel to discuss the Christian and Jewish perspective on civil unrest. And I will be flying out to Los Angeles on Wednesday and return on uh, uh, to the uh, mic on Friday. So it's going to be kind of a choppy week, but that's what's coming up for the next uh, couple of weeks. If you think of it, say a prayer. I'll be flying in and out. Of course, um, during a pandemic, flying in and out means when I come home, I'm going to have to self-quarantine because my 89-year-old mother lives right here in our home, and I want to make sure she is fully protected. Uh, so it's going to be a, a bit of a challenge for the next several week, but I'm look, weeks, rather, but I'm looking forward to it and looking forward to returning to the mic on Monday and again on Thursday of the following week. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.